G'day. Uh, you are live on Lunch Money. Um, I'm Nick Samios. I'm your Lunch Money host. And Lunch Money is the online and social media home for workout special situations and capital raising professionals. I have to read that these days because we used to do these weekly and we do them monthly now. And sometimes I forget my own spiel. Um, look, we have got a very upbeat and uh, positive lunch money uh, today. We are talking about growth, diversification, uh, growing your business, uh, etc. And the, the, we're, we're talking, I guess, uh, we're keeping commercial finance brokers in mind, but we're talking really across uh, professional services. Um, so I've got a couple of very special guests today. I have uh, Daniela Manchusa. Mancusa, Daniela Mancusa, um, and Ian Hyman from uh, from Hyman's, and uh, Ian uh, has been a, a guest a few times before. So, look, Ian, why don't we um, why don't we start with you, just uh, telling us a little bit about your um, your interest in uh, growing uh, growing professional services, and maybe uh, tell us something anecdotally about something interesting that happened to you this week. Look, I think uh, professional services is a really, it's a, it's a fascinating area because uh, for most professions, we've got a limited you know, gene pool in terms of employees. So our biggest challenge is obviously um, acquiring the correct staff and keeping them happy and training them. Um, so it's, uh, that's probably our biggest challenge. I think um, the most interesting things that have happened this week, um, particularly in relation to insolvency, we're starting to see um, a pickup in the insolvency space in the valuation area, uh, assets needing to be valued as they're in distress, and that's certainly happening in the property development area. It's probably the most um, the most interesting aspect of what we're doing at the moment. And certainly over the last few weeks, and this week in particular, we've seen a number of uh, new appointments come through. Okay, that's interesting. Actually, I've just as you were talking there, I've, I've just jotted down uh, a little question for later on uh, because. One of the things about professional services, and it applies to commercial brokers, it applies to uh, a firm with the name Hyman on the on the uh, on the door outside, is uh, how we leverage and grow our businesses. If you're only one person, um, but obviously you want to grow and expand, and you want you don't want the business to be entirely based on you. But uh, yeah, okay. So you're seeing a pickup in distressed properties. You say? Yeah. Can I just say one thing about business development? Um, yeah. There's a handful of people that I've met through my life that actually love knocking on doors of people that I've never met on before. You're one of them. Um, I'm another one. Um, and uh, where, where we struggled over the years is the fact that, that most people that, that call themselves salespeople, BDMs, um, however you want to sort of denote the, the term, most people don't really like selling. And um, I think it's very difficult to build a successful sales model without people that genuinely love, and I'm not talking about relationship management here, I'm talking about the actual um, act of, of, of getting to know people that you've never met before and, and trying to identify their needs and, and how you can service each other uh, and, and creating networks. Um, it, it's just something that's so rare uh, that, that they're, they're like diamonds. Well, two, two things there. I was saying to Daniela before, and we've got to give Daniela a, a platform in a moment, but uh, I mean, you've certainly taught me a lot about networking, Ian, um, and even at my crusty old age, I know you're a little bit younger than I am, 
but uh, I'm still meeting new people. I mean, I met Daniela at uh, uh, Commercial Finance Brokers Golf Day, and obviously we've, re we, we've, we've, we've sort of done the playbook on what to do, you know, we've connected and caught up and all the rest of it. So uh, I think, and you would agree, you're never too, new, too old to make new connections. The other thing is I would uh, make this offer um, to, to anybody uh, watching or, or for their staff. I love cold calling, absolutely, 100%. And I don't mean picking up the phone. I mean walking down the street uh, at Alexandria or, or um, you know, out in MacArthur, anywhere you've got, and I've trained many a sales rep, walking down the street, knocking on the doors and just asking for the boss. And I tell you what, that's the one way you'd learn very quickly. But anyway, we are getting distracted. Let's uh, go to Daniela. So, Daniela, tell us a little bit about what yourself, uh, what you do, and um, maybe something interesting that happened to you this week. Sure. So in terms of my background, I think you could say growth uh, companies are in my DNA. Um, back before the internet was even mainstream um, and before Gumtree um, existed, there was a company called The Trading Post. And my very first job was selling advertising in a new um, media publication called The Sydney Auto Trader. So that gives you a little bit of, about my very first forays in the automotive uh, industry, but also in terms of sales and in growth companies. And that trend sort of continued throughout my career. I worked with Aussie Homelands and Rams back in the 90s. Um, I worked at AMP Banking before it was the bank, when it was priority one. Um, and during that changeover period, um, contributed heavily to the setup of Fox Symes um, mortgage broking arms. So pre previous to that, they were obviously Australia's largest debt administrator and helped get them into a very new market, which was non-conforming lending. Um, repeated that process at another business called Easy Loans. And then had the worst two years of my life when I worked at the bank, which was Westpac. So my entire career has yeah. generally been underpinned by, by growth businesses. And most recently, um, a five-year stint at Wiser, um, which is a fintech personal loan and auto uh, consumer lender. And uh, having contributed to 100x growth over a five-year period, I've now joined Nationwise, which is another growth company. So growth um, yeah. is what drives me and, and scale. So it's, it's great to be here with the both of you and certainly uh, to the point of networking. Um, I'm a really big believer, whether it's networking or sales, you, you've just got to get out there and be willing to provide value. If you take the sales lens off away from the conversation, you create an environment where you're providing value to the other person rather than thinking about closing the deal for yourself. It just becomes part of the natural flow and the natural order of things, you know, universe is dictated by several laws, whether we want to admit that or not. And the law of reciprocity simply says, you know, if I give you something, you feel compelled um, to, to, to give back. And that's how I approach well, networking with sales. I've got to, we won't talk about it now, but I'm pretty sure that we could talk a lot about the reciprocity, but also abundance, you know, having a 100%. coming from a standpoint of abundance. And you and I know, but you know, I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, listen, I, I, that that is a fascinating background. I mean, Fox Arms, um, I know that uh, Justin Fox is an avid uh, viewer of our of our uh, of our live stream here. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, 
you know, I, I did see, I, I mean, I, I did see in your voluminous uh, LinkedIn profile, yeah, that you've got a, a very interesting background in lending. So, you you know, when you're talking to finance brokers, I mean, you've done it all before, you've seen it, particularly you've grown businesses, so you do know what you're talking about. So let's, um, I've got I've, I've got some questions here that uh, I've, I've, uh, I've got. So let's start off with how have you seen the professional services industry change and evolve over the years? I mean, that's, this is a question that's ideal for you, given all that, that, that track record. And what are some of the biggest challenges uh, based? Uh, so, so how has it changed over the years, and what are the biggest challenges that that we're facing today? Yeah, we could probably spend uh, a good few hours on on that exact question. I mean, ultimately, we've had a big change in terms of regulation um, and the requirements required to to fit the role, obviously, as well. We've had big changes in terms of technology and the impact that technology has had in helping businesses grow and scale and optimize their operations. But also we've had changes in terms of the people um, and generationally, you know, the workforce has evolved. Most of the workforce now comprises of millennials. So as as leaders, we need to make sure that we we are aiming all of our uh, strategies at being able to adapt to uh, marketing to, to millennials from a consumer standpoint, but also serving them as our people um, in our organisations. And that is a fascinating challenge, uh, I, I have to say. Um, and from your point of view, I mean, you uh, obviously you've never been a finance broker, but you've dealt with finance brokers, you know, for, for I'm sure every day, every day for a long time. I know, time. Ian. I've certainly challenged one or two of your valuations in the past. That's for sure. <laughs> well, Daniela said that to me before we went live, and I said, I, I don't think that makes a Robinson Crusoe. That's that's, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, but I mean, how have you seen, I mean, from your point of view, how have you seen commercial finance breaking change is my first question to you. And then we'll maybe get on to I mean, just turnaround times and expectations on turnaround times being on deals. Uh, people used yeah. to talk about weeks, now it's days, um, sometimes it's 24 hours. Uh, and, I, and I think we've had to adjust whether through video inspections of assets uh, to desktop, uh, you know, things that would never have been accepted 10, you know, five years ago, to be honest. And now being accepted um, partly because of change in regulatory practices, but also because the technology now has improved so much um, that it's just made it so much more efficient. And it means we can get the product to market being the valuation, which is normally the foundation of any of any finance deal. The valuation sits behind behind all of those things. Um, so you know we're often turning around vows in you know one, two, three, four days. As I say in the past, that might have been you know two weeks, three weeks. Uh, depending on uh, having to go to various sites, and whereas now we get somebody with a phone that goes around the asset and takes video uh, video of it and sends us screenshots of the things we want to see, and we've we've uh, we spat the valuation out the following day. Ian, just yeah. a question quickly on that, if you don't mind, Nick. Um, what do you think the likelihood of moving into drone valuations in the future might be? Wow. Look, um, for, plant, for, for plant equipment, it simply won't. I don't think it'll fly. Um, and part of that is because of the identification components you need for that. In terms of property, residential, um, possibly, but the satellite navigation, the satellite stuff now is so good that, that you don't really don't need a drone other than um, you know, that the house is, is there basically. And it was photographed a week ago um, by, uh, by Google. So, um, but you don't get the benefit of the, the, the inside view of a property, for example. So. Well, drones are good for uh, if we're doing a solar farm or a um, some type some type of wind farm sort of arrangement. 
where we didn't need to get down and literally physically see plates and, and tick off serial numbers and, and so on. Um, yeah, certainly drones could be used, but we're not seeing a lot of it in what we're doing at the moment, but it's there's certainly opportunity there. I know in the asset finance space or the asset space in America, they've, they've already started that. So I thought it was an interesting uh, thing to see how quickly it'll be adopted here and you're already using it. So very yeah, interesting. I'll I tell you what, Daniel. We've actually valued quite a few drones. There you go. I was going to say that Danielle, that was such a good question. I think we should change roles here. Um, but but uh, that's uh, that, that was very good. Listen, um, Ian, uh, my, I guess in your practice, because we're not just talking about commercial finance brokers here, we're talking about professional services as well. I mean, in your practice, um, you know, how do you go about uh, looking for growth opportunities uh, and and diversification. I mean, what if, when you I know that you know you you I think you've you've made some acquisitions along the way. Uh, I mean, how do you make the decisions to grow your business in that direction? Look, we, we've just made an acquisition effective this week, which should hopefully um, uh, become effective from one July. So, look, the, the, the there are two reasons these days, in my view, to do it to do acquisitions. The the, the customer revenue is obviously always important. But I think more important than ever now is, is the quality of the people that you're acquiring as part of the acquisition. And um, certainly, uh, you know, we've just acquired a practice down in the Victorian market in the property in the property area. Uh, we've been trying to recruit down there uh, for the last uh, probably two to three years, uh, and it's been very challenging. So um, we'll be hopefully taking on sort of five you know, property values as part of that um, sort of merger. Uh, and I'm really excited about that. Um, they've got a couple of panels as well that we're not on uh, funder panels, and um, as a result, um, we expect uh, you know that they'll stick uh, hopefully with us, um, and we'll be able to get some 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 growth from that. But also, the growth from actually being able to turn around you know our property valuations in Victoria on a much more timely basis, uh, and have a much broader range of expertise in our Melbourne office. That, that is interesting. So, so you, you, one of the motivations for buying a business is to get the personnel and the customer base, basically. I mean, yeah, so effectively, uh, amongst the five added we're, we're taking on, if I had to go and recruit them, if, if I could find them, we're probably talking about one hundred and thirty to one hundred and forty thousand dollars in recruitment fees. Right. So, and the access so you, to the panel, I think you know that's what we would look at as well. You, you, you're needing access to funder panels. We may need access to lenders, so that's a, that's an important uh, point to consider as well when looking at the acquisition. Uh, Danielle, have you have you had much uh, experience with with brokerages, you know, selling like finance brokers selling their businesses? Yeah, I have had quite a little uh, bit of experience in my past, but my current role is very much aimed on that. So there is a right. you know a portion of our business that will go out to market. Um, and partner link arms with brokerages that either want investment or perhaps want um, they may they might need other, need other resources that they need to grow and scale their business. So, where you know we have multiple um, multiple companies, multiple brands that sit under the group. Um, one one particular part of that is aimed at, at long term acquisitions. Okay, so so one of the interesting challenges that a lot I mean I've seen brokers sell their firms. I've seen. You know the cog model for example where they come along and buy the whole firm i've also had uh i've got a friend who sold one and as the person that bought it's become a friend as well where they bought uh just his practice within a firm so bought his client list and all the rest of it i mean because one of the problems i mean you're the broker it's, it's, it's a perennial problem for brokers obviously is valuing 
their businesses. Now, I guess in the mortgage space, it's one thing because you've got trailers, but you don't have the trailers in the, say, commercial leasing, for example, or you're just making your, your income from deal to deal. So how do you, you know, how do you, let's say you've got someone who is, you know, eyeing retirement um, and they want to sell their commercial leasing, you know, commercial equipment finance business, how do you prep them for that sale? And then how do you overcome the obstacle of, you know, the clients are familiar with them. So how do you sort of take them out of the picture so the client's dealing with the business and the business has value? Is that something that you've... It's That's a really good question. Um, and it really is dependent on the individual business because every director has their own, um, you know, their own goals and aspirations and, and different... Uh, in different periods of their career. So it's something that we would do on a consultative basis. A, there is a bit of maths behind it. I won't give away all the secret yeah. sauce. Um, but yes, certainly if there's a business uh, that's looking at exit strategies, um, by all means hit me offline and, and we can go through that in a little bit more detail. And uh, I guess the flip side of that as well is people who are looking to grow by, by, by buying yeah. So, so what are the? I mean, so what are the motivations for brokers buying other brokerages? I mean, what do you find the key motivations are? Well, from our perspective, it's not so much brokers buying other brokerages; it's the group. It's our group investing in other brokerages. Right, 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 right. Um, right. But the motivations are very, very similar to what Ian's mentioned. It's about the the, the quality and caliber of the people. Certainly. Um, the income that's generated. So from an asset finance space perspective, the NAF, the monthly NAF that's already there and predicted to, and the growth predictions based off that, but also those lender, um, those direct to lender relationships and perhaps other IP that they might have within that business. So, you know, there's been um, examples where th there could be IP generated from a process or a regulatory perspective that rather than having to reinvent the wheel, it makes a lot more sense for a business like ours to acquire that. Um, and, and still have uh, a career path available for that founder. So there are some that are looking at it purely as a retirement exit strategies, exit strategy, but there are others as well that are looking at it, at it from a perspective of being able to grow their career and grow their footprint, um, but doing that and linking arms rather than competing, um, collaborate, collaborating with us. So that's how we essentially look at it. Right. Um... And, and and let's say you're looking at a fine, you're looking at buying a brokerage and Ian's there, right? And he's, he doesn't have ownership in the brokerage, but he is a big rainmaker. He's, you know, he's accounting for, you know, 40% of the, the, the and, and unlike Ian in real life, this particular Ian is a cantankerous sort of difficult to manage, you know, and you so 40% so of the income or a significant chunk of the income is coming from rainmaker Ian, but he's not an owner. So, I mean, how do you, how do you make sure that when you're buying that, that brokerage that you're still that you, you're still getting in along as part of the deal. That's a really great question, and certainly it would uh, form part of you know the if you do a traditional SWOT analysis, it's a, a pretty big uh, threat that that could impact that business. So it, there's a few ways in which you could skin that. Whether it's approach Ian directly and see what um, opportunities that we can partner up with and get some sort of commitment or contract in place to secure his services. If he is cantankerous and, and problematic to deal with, it's probably not going to be in alignment with the group's values. So that might be a business that we might choose to pass on because of the fact it's been so heavily um, reliant on Ian, in this case's uh, contribution. So all of that forms part of the, you know, the due diligence and the risk analysis when we're identifying um, who, you know, we're not going to take on board anyone. There's got to be that alignment piece. And um, unless that alignment is there with our purpose and, and our values, it's probably not going to be a fruitful partnership. So that's, uh, that's 
that would that would definitely form part of the initial investigation. And Ian, uh, you've been through a couple of these acquisitions yourself in uh, in your business. I mean, have you come across those scenarios, or how do you how do you lock down the staff, or how do you overcome the challenges? No, that's, a, that's the biggest challenge uh, on every acquisition. Um, look, uh, in the last two years, we, we made another acquisition about two years ago of a healthcare practice, um, which I, I just identified as an area that I thought uh, had had incredible opportunities for growth and also had limited uh, supplies in the marketplace. So there's not many firms that will value aged care facilities, retirement villages, SDA accommodation and the like. Um, so we uh, we found a we found a valuer who was sort of at, towards the end of his career, but had 35, 40 years experience, had, had um, a really good referral base. And we brought uh, Bordage Practice in two years ago. That's been a great success. And we've now built a team up underneath him. And he's uh, been a great mentor and continues to be a great mentor to them. Um, but over the next 12 to sort of 18 months, he'll probably uh, retire. Um, we'll try and keep him going as long as we can, as long as he wants to have an involvement. Um, but it, it's been a it's been a wonderful acquisition and um, you know uh, profit positive, you know, literally from day one. But they're not always that way. And I've, I've bought a whole range of businesses over the years, not just in the valuation space. And if you can't get the people side of it right, it's going to end up as a disaster. And I've had a couple of those, unfortunately, as well where um, you know, key people in the firm have simply not wanted to come on the journey with you. And no matter what you do, no matter how you couch the remuneration and the incentives, um, they seem to be destined to try, either try and destroy or to go out and do something different uh, with a competitor or on their own. So it's, it is a very challenging aspect of it. Right, right, right. Okay, now listen, we have, uh, believe it or not, we uh, we actually have a bit of a university attending audience, um, a lot out of Wollongong, Wollongong because we've had a guest there a few times, um, 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 but uh, Paul Mazzola has been uh, very generous to us in the past. But uh, so I'm just going to get a little bit academic for a moment, if you don't mind. I'm going to share this, the ANSOF matrix for growth. This has been uh, taught at universities since 1966. And basically, four different ways of uh, of growing. You can penetrate the market, so that's where you've got you're just trying to sell more of what you're doing to the existing customer base. Uh, you can uh, you can uh, work on your existing customer base, but uh, sell them new products. So I guess whether it's insurance or home loans or whatever it might be, uh, you can uh, you can expand um, your, uh, your your customer base. So go outside your traditional customer base and maybe look at new markets. So I guess for Ian that might be going from lenders to insolvency people or from lenders to to, to insurance. And then there's complete diversification altogether. Um, so I know, uh, Ian, in, you know, when you look at that, you know, when you've got to make a decision, you want to grow your business, you could look at maybe trying to capture more of your existing market share or finding new markets or developing new products. I mean, you've looked at, I know that you must have looked at this strategically. Uh, I know that, um, you know, so, so what, how, how do you, how do you decide where, because it's every, every one of those is an investment, even if you decide to develop new products or develop new markets, you've got to make an investment. Um, so what, what, what do you think? We're going to say, I mean, Danielle mentioned before, that, you know, building a business case. Um, the reality is that I, I think most businesses, and I include myself in this, are not great at um, really defining the numbers um, around an acquisition or in, in terms of going to a new market. And it tends to be a little bit by the gut and a little bit spontaneous. Um, probably the best thing I've done in the last five years is to take on a corporate advisor. Uh, and that corporate advisor, um, unlike myself, is very strategic. 
Um, uh, I won't say he's not passionate, he is passionate, but passionate in a different way. Um, I'm very much a glasses, he's 90% full person. He's more a glasses, 45% um, full. Um, so he brings me back into line and, and focuses on the performance areas that are really important uh, in any any financial decision to grow the, to grow the business. Um, so look, it, it's you're not it's not mutually exclusive to do one thing or the other. Sometimes, as we've done, we've looked to to grow organically and to grow by acquisition at the same time. But for most small businesses, and we're a you know a forty sort of something person organisation, you don't actually have those people within your business to do that work. Everyone's out there; they're either selling or they're doing or they're administrating or whatever it might be. So. Unless you bring a resource in, um, we're doing it by the seat of our pants, and that's probably the worst thing you can do. And why people like Daniela um, add such value uh, into those conversations and, and decisions. And Daniela, so when you're, I mean, one of the things that you do is advising brokers on how to diversify their businesses. Um, so, what are the sort of uh, most common, uh, shall we say, gaps in what you find brokers are doing that are the, you know, the, what's the low hanging fruit when it comes to, to brokers diversifying their businesses? Uh, look, I think it's resourcing to begin with because they're spending so much time working in their business and not allowing um, at least, say you're talking about a one-man band, at least someone coming in there to helping them with their processing, for example, so they can, you know, they can see the trees. Uh, see beyond the trees, so to speak. So in terms of um, smaller brokerages, it's it's really getting their processing right, getting uh, optimising their, their tech to help um, free up some extra time. And then really I what I generally just do is sit down with them and really identify what drives them, what are the things that they're interested in, what's, a, what's around their circle of influence. Um, you know, for a business to be sustainable for any length of time, you've got to really love what you do. Um, and that's generally doing business with people that you like doing business with. So often it's a real values assessment, I guess you could say, um, to begin with, is and really, really getting down to the nitty gritty on what drives them, what their goals and aspirations are, and then reverse engineering um, the, the the options that you would suggest from there. So for some businesses, it could be additional staff, it could be a referral partnership with uh, with another asset class, for example. Whereas others might want to have that um, that referral. Um, that referral person in-house. So it really is yeah. a very tailored um, and bespoke solution based on um, what drives that individual. So, for example, you might have the, yeah, the the commercial lease broker brings in, you know, do they bring in the mortgage person or do they, or do they, or do they uh, just set up an alliance? Um, sure. It's interesting, you, you mentioned staffing. Now, I have a friend who's a broker. Uh, he got himself some new digs in town and he was very pleased with himself. And then COVID came along um, and he had this gorgeous office. Uh, and then then, it, then sort of people will be coming back to work and he's tried to recruit and he's found it very hard to recruit. And that's one of the big challenges in professional services is finding people. Um, now, he, I, I then put him on to, to another friend who's got a, um, an offshoring business. And so he's managed to, to, to offshore some of his processing in the Philippines. Um, I mean, are you seeing much of that or is that part of your advice, uh, Danielle? Seeing a lot of that um, and have had quite a bit of experience, even internally um, with my previous company and, and where I'm at now, where there is this reluctance to go back to the office five days a week. I think 
unless businesses really understand that um, there needs to be some flexibility, there will be that challenge. What I think uh, the way forward is, is hybrid working, but certainly the offshoring piece, and that's a discussion that I would be having with any broker about whatever non-customer facing um, tasks that they can suitably offshore. Um, it certainly is a, a strategy to consider uh, and a very cost-effective one is at, at that. And uh, I spoke with a couple of um, BPOs uh, at a rec recent conference, and it's something that we want to make sure that we have on our aggregation panel is a you know a, a, a group of suppliers that brokers can choose from um, to to utilise and um, and take advantage of the skill set that does exist overseas. And these BPOs are well-established organisations. They've got staff that are incredibly well um, educated with plenty of direct industry experience. A lot of them have worked for Australian businesses for up to 10 years or more, um, but, you know, banking offshore a long time ago in Australia. So definitely there is an opportunity uh, for brokers to take advantage of that. Now, when you say BPO, of course, that means it stands for, I know what it means, it's offshoring, but what is it? Business, business process offshoring, yeah. Business process offshoring. And oh, um, so, so, so for your... Something like that. Yeah. Well, offshoring, anyway. But but for your for your customers or for your clients, uh, you can offer them a you you can sort of put them in touch with the right BPOs. Now, Ian, uh, have you? I know that you do a little bit of that. I mean, do you have you? I guess one because we, we're talking about growing, you know, growing a professional services business. And I mentioned before that one of the business biggest problems, particularly smaller firms, have is leveraging themselves. I mean, have you found um, that you know offshoring to some extent to to help you grow? Well, we've, we've got several staff in the Philippines and, and that's been the case for the last, I think, eight years now. Um, my wonderful PA, Rhea, um, has been with me for five years and uh, she's probably the best PA that I've, I've ever had. Um, she's amazing. Um, we do telemarketing out of the Philippines. We do uh, report processing. Um, the next thing we're going to start looking at is actually doing some of our research analysis out of the Philippines as well. That's sort of underway. We're assessing that at the moment. Uh, look, you can't afford to ignore it because the all-up cost of most employees in that scenario are in the order of two, you know, two to two and a half thousand dollars a month, uh, and that's with everything. That's insurance, that's their computers, their office, um, you know, their training. Every, everything gets incorporated, uh, and and it's worked extremely well. So, and we find that um, in the certainly in the Philippines, where, we, where we've got staff, uh, they really appreciate. The opportunity to have a job and work for a for a good employer, uh, so it's only been a very positive experience for us. Yeah, I mean, I worry about it on one. I think that's great. I worry about it on a, on an economic level. You know, if we do start to see you know an increase in unemployment, for example, I think that it'll be the onshore jobs that go first because, as you said, at two and a half grand a month, uh, and you're getting very professional, highly educated people. Why this is at thirty grand a year? Uh, you're probably going to hang on to them longer than you're going to hang on to someone someone who's local. Listen, um, uh, my next question, Daniela, is uh, we, we're all familiar with the business that was great when they were small and easy to deal with, uh, but they've grown and they've maybe grown a little bit too much and now the service isn't quite so personal. You know, you used to be able to pick up the phone to the key person and now you get bumped off to their staff. You know, um, how, do you, how do you grow a professional services firm? Um, and, and how do you make that trade-off between growth and maintaining a high-quality um, product, a high-quality service? I would, great question, and I've experienced that probably with every growth firm that I've worked 
have worked at, particularly when it when they're moving from that startup to scale up. And I think the most important thing is, is if you're aiming for growth to ensure that you've got the right operational processes um, in place and at least the right foundation in terms of people and duplicating um, the process and the people uh, accordingly. Now, things don't always go to, go to plan. Um, and I think it's an, in, an inevitable um, risk and, and probably an, inevit an, an inevitable lesson for, um, for any growth company uh, because with that, uh, the perspective that comes is, is certainly something that you can um, rely upon in, in future endeavours. But certainly having um, the, the proper processes in place before, um, if you can, if before, before skyrocketing, um, we'll, we'll certainly um, try and mitigate the risks that come with growth. So do you, do you get it? I'll ask you, Ian, do you get involved in documenting processes? Because obviously this is a challenge for you as well. Uh, I mean, well, I, I know that you... Yeah, so I used to be extensively involved in that, in that side of it now. I do tend to review critical, new critical processes after they've been drafted. But, you know, we've got a national head of our property valuation team. We've got a national head of our plant equipment valuation team and the same with our business valuation team. So I'd expect that the people at that level uh, will um, need for, for the drafting of processes. Uh, you have to have them, they're, they're critical, um, whether it's around contractor engagement, whether it's in relation to professional standards, your team need to know where the, you know, what, what, where the business sits and what our, what our policies are. And um, it's not just good enough to have them, you've then got to make sure that they're inculcated into the culture of, your, of the team as well. So look, I'll leave it to the divisional heads in the main, but they'll often involve me at the, at the final, in the final uh, section of or part of the, the approval process, just to say, well, this is where we're at. We've, we've done our consultation internally and externally. I can just have a look and make sure you, you know, you're happy with it. And most of the time I am. Um, I guess it's one of those. Yep, I was go just on. going to add as well, Nick, you know, so that, that goes without saying that you've already established, you know, a really good uh, nexus of people that are in, in alignment with the firm's vision and, and purpose um, and all in alignment with values. And that, and then the, from a recruitment perspective, that often um, gets overlooked is that when you're in a growth organisation, you're trying to fill um, a gap in the business or very, you know, very, try, very quickly trying to backfill um, an inefficiency in the business. And with that, sometimes you attract the wrong people or they're not quite in alignment with, um, with the business's aspirations. And that's where I've seen the biggest risks um, uh, overall in how it's impacted businesses and, and caused them to go backwards in many cases. I was going to say, um, yeah, that's right. I mean, well, you're sort of reinforcing what I'm thinking is that uh, back, you know, a long time ago, one of the great uh, small business management uh, books uh, was, uh, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was by Michael Gerber. And he talked about the um, e working. The E-Myth. There you go. The E-Myth. That's it. About, and it's, it's the old corny line now, but, um, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe the millennials haven't heard it, but uh, working, working on the business and not in the business. I suppose is is one of the challenges. I still, I think I used that earlier in the uh, in the podcast. That that's one of the things that I see with yeah. those smaller groups, um, and even those that are starting to get you know reasonable traction. Um, you might have a couple of directors there that are captain coach, both um, writing you know furiously writing loans. They're the BDM for the company, and you know trying to do all the the, the small business management um, that's required to to grow. But that's where they get stuck. 
and find it really difficult to get to the, ne the next stage. It often comes with a lot of overwhelm um, and they're generally highly stressed and wondering why the hell did they go into business for themselves in the first place. So that's why, you know, certainly partnering with, um, you know, a business coach or, as Ian said, with some of the help of corporate strategy or a business like us um, in helping businesses identify opportunities uh, for them to grow just helps shoulder, um, you know, so, some of that burden. Um, okay, now... Well, I've just, uh, because because both of you are quite shy and it's very hard for me to get anything out of you, um, surprisingly, we are running down the clock. So just a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, last uh, points uh, so that I make sure that we fulfil our promise as to what we said we were going to talk about. One of the things that you touched on earlier, Daniela, was technology. And you've sort of mentioned it a few times. Uh, you've given Ian, I don't know if Ian had thought about sending drones out to mine sites and what have you to inspect equipment. Uh, maybe that was a, a great idea that we should have told him privately. I'm not sure. Uh, but but what, 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 what are the other, I mean, what are the other roles that you think technology has to play in helping people, I guess, leverage themselves and, uh, and, and expand? Look, certainly from if you're looking, if you're an asset finance or a mortgage broker or a commercial broker, really um, ensuring that the business that you partnership to help ma manage um, all your processes internally from lead generation straight through to performance settlement and, um, and post-settlement marketing and engagement, you need to make sure that, um, you know, whichever aggregator you choose or whatever platform that you select, that it's um, something that's ever-growing and uh, that the business themselves are, are looking always to the next steps um, of evolution. We had a chat earlier um, offline about generative AI and things like GPT and, and BARD and Copilot. Um, certainly I've utilised that only really recently, um, to be honest. And, you know, as a, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm a bit of a recovering perfectionist and I think if anyone uh, anyone listening or, or, or watching uh, suffers from uh perfectionism what does happen is you know procrastination and uh, paralysis right so one thing that uh, that chat gpt has helped me with is really just getting straight into a task um even where i may, may not quite have formed where i want to begin um but really using some prompts just to stimulate um ideas and then it just it just it's not about i don't use it to plagiarise or to use the, the, the content, but it just kick-starts the activity really, really quickly. Um, so anyone who uh, who suffers from that, I certainly suggest that you, you check that out. Yeah, I mean, I think I was saying before we went on on, on air as well, I think you've got to be careful with chat GPT as well. I, I've seen people, I, you, you know, I'm seeing a lot of content on LinkedIn, for example, and people who used to post occasionally are now posting all the time. And you can just tell that you, know, you just want to be careful that you don't rely on it too heavily because I can certainly pick up when there's a lot of chat GPT in there. Um, Ian, yeah, anything? UK uh, bits there, Nick, I think, that, you, yeah. that you've got to make sure that you say, you know, it's, you've got to have a sanity check. Use it for research yeah. and analysis, but make sure that the essence of your flavor, like your, your messaging and your personality and who you are comes through, that it's used as a, as a prompt or a tool, not necessarily as a replacement for, for all your content. Um, uh, anything anything to add to that, that generally, not necessarily chat GPT, but just the use of technology, um, Ian, that we haven't sort of yeah, I'm about. a baby boomer, so I haven't quite got my head around uh, chat GPT at this stage. Um, I, but I think, uh, Nick, you, you sort of dwelt um, momentarily on the risks of artificial intelligence. I think it's a, a massive, uh, I think it's a massive risk um, because it's, at this stage, it seems to be uncontrollable. 
a uh, number of my staff have, have jumped on it and uh, they're sending me stuff uh, via emails of I'm thinking did you really write this or was it written by, by a machine <laughs> um, but um like I, I, we're just going to see how it, where it goes but I think um over time it's going to become a I think it's going to become a big issue to be honest all right look let's finish off with um any tips um, that you might be looking, uh, what, 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 uh, someone who wants to get into professional services, start their own firm, any any sort of tips uh, in mind of the environment that we're in today? I'd start with you, Ian. Well, I think um, setting something up on your own is 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 really challenging. You know, I think you need to be looking at forming, um, you know, uh, not a partnership, there's certainly a, um, a corporate structure where you've got at least one or two partners with you that might have some diverse skills um because i mean one of the things i've seen is that in, inevitably we're, we're we're skilled in one area whether it's sales whether it's accounting um whether it's administration or project management but um we don't not many of us have all of those skills so if you want to grow a business as opposed to simply being a one-man band i think it's important that you choose um associates that you can work with um to create something of value so a, i guess what i'm saying is that the sum of the the sum of the, the parts is exceeded by the value of, of, of all of them uh, within within the group. And um, certainly over the years, um, you know, in other businesses that I've been involved in, I've had some outstanding partners that have added um, real value to what I'm doing and, and certainly fill some gaps in my knowledge and understanding of business. Okay. Uh, and Danielle, any, any advice you've had for someone looking to maybe start their own, uh, you know, branch out on their own in a, in a finance brokerage, you know, quit the bank or or quit the large firm that they're already working for? Yeah, absolutely. And to Ian's point, I 100% agree um, in terms of the diversity of people that you've got there. And, you know, not so much of about ticking, you know, a HR inclusivity and diversity box, but really that diversity of skill set. Um, but as long as that diversity of skill set uh, is also underpinned by alignment of purpose and, and, and of values to help build the, you know, the, the right culture, um, but certainly if you're, you know, looking to transition from banking to broking or looking to step out from being, a, say, a credit rope under a, a brokerage arm and going out on your own, it's just absolutely critical that you select the right aggregation group um, that will, you know, in, in a lot of ways, uh, particularly if you're for a first-time small business owner, your aggregator is really going to be your, your first port of call in helping you, um, you know, unpack all the requirements to set up a successful brokerage and help you navigate through the regulatory environment, the compliance environment, but more so really um, selecting someone that's there that you align with but is absolutely committed to the growth of your business. Um, that's the most important um, that's the most important piece. Someone that that's done it before and, and happy to help see you succeed and sees your success, um, you know, their success determined on on your success. Okay, that's uh, well. I think that's a very nice note uh, to finish on. So, um, I would like to uh, to thank both Daniela and Ian, who I'll unmute. Uh, thank, thank you very much to Daniela and to Ian for uh, for joining me today. It's been, a, I think, it's been a, a wonderful combination uh, of, uh, of of uh, different perspectives uh, with some real life experience. So, thank you very, very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Great to be with you. Okay, take it easy. Cheers.